Well, good evening and welcome to all of you. It's, uh, it's a great pleasure to have you here for what I know is going to be a very special, uh, special evening. I'm Jonathan Leap. I'm the Executive Director of the International Growth Center, which is based here at the LSE, but is a partnership also with Oxford University. We're an independent research center that aims to promote sustainable and inclusive growth in developing countries by providing demand-led policy advice based on frontier research. So it's really an attempt to marry the worlds of frontier research that LSE and Oxford and others are so active in with the world of policymaking and its challenges and its different rhythms. And two of the things that are different about the IGC are first that we maintain country offices in 12 countries across Africa, Asia, and the Middle East. And secondly, that we're all about collaboration. So we work very closely with senior people in government to figure out what we should be doing research on and then to build relationships with them to enable us to bring that research into policy in effective ways. We're very pleased this evening to be co-hosting this event with the Faraj Lalji Center for Africa, also here at the uh, London School of Economics. It's an independent academic research center and uh, teaching center, which really aims to stimulate open and issue-oriented debate and evidence-based policymaking. Well, it's a great honor to host uh, such an extraordinary individual as Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Uela this evening. In 2003, following a 21-year career in the World Bank, during which she rose to the position of Vice President, she was appointed by President Obasanjo in Nigeria to the position of Minister of Finance, and then later Finance Minister. She was the first woman to hold either portfolio. In 2007, she returned to the World Bank and became the Managing Director of the World Bank. And in 2011, was persuaded, ultimately, to return to Nigeria under President Goodluck Jonathan to become a finance minister with the additional portfolio of the coordinating minister for the economy. Today, she is the chair of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. She's a senior advisor at Lazards, and she's on a number of uh, boards, including the Rockefeller Foundation and the uh, uh, CGD, the Center for Global Development. She was named by Fortune magazine as one of the 50th 50 Greatest World Leaders in 2015, five times in a row by Forbes as one of the 100 Most Powerful Women in the World, and in, 19, in 2014 by Time Magazine as one of the world's 100 Most Influential People. What's, potentially, uh, what's particularly impressive as a reformer about her track record <clears throat> is the fact that she's managed to run twin tracks through policy reform, not only having the vision to drive what are sometimes called stroke-of-the-pen reforms, things like debt relief and others which were essential in her first term of office, but also the attention and commitment to take on long-term institutional challenges. So to start things that she knew would not reap full benefits during her tenure, uh, but were essential for the country going forward. And this links to the second thing, which is, I think, what's most impressive about Dr. Conjuruela, and that is her courage. Until this reading her book that we're talking about today, I thought of this primarily in political and professional terms. She's someone who stands out as being willing to take the risks that most politicians, quite sensibly, run away from. So those are the kinds of decisions where you have to impose short-term costs for a long-term benefit. 
And the worst of those being where that long-term benefit is way beyond the electoral cycle so that other people are going to get credit for the costs that you've imposed uh, today. So those are the kinds of decisions which often, of course, we see it in climate change, but we see it right through development in terms of building infrastructure, both physical and human infrastructure, that are really essential to underpin development going forward. And all too few leaders are willing to take those, uh, those tough decisions. But as we'll hear this evening, what comes out very clearly from the book is that this personal and political courage is underpinned by personal courage, that taking on corruption in particular, which is the focus of this evening's talk, just required not only difficult political uh, decisions and, and challenging uh, decisions, but also a, a huge amount of, of personal courage. And I think it's that combination that we too often underestimate. We were talking just before the, uh, the, the talk right now about examples across Africa and, and around the world of, of uh, finance ministers particularly, but uh, for example, in the case of, uh, of Italy, the minister responsible for reforming pensions under the technical government um, several years ago was suffered sustained personal attack. So even in, in, in Europe, but even more so as we get into the developing world, these sorts of personal attacks are too often aimed at people who attempt difficult reforms, and I think that's a really important issue for us to be aware of. Let me say a couple of things by way of housekeeping. Please make sure your phones are on silent. Uh, please uh, feel free to tweet. Uh, LSE Ngozi um, is, the hand, uh, is the handle. And, um, and finally, uh, Dr. Kojo Wele will be available afterwards to sign copies of the book there, which I highly recommend, Fighting Corruption. With that, it's my great pleasure to introduce the speaker. Good evening, everyone. My name is Minou Shafiq, and I'm the director of the London School of Economics, and I'm here to welcome you to, to this event with Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela tonight. And I particularly wanted to welcome and thank Gordon and Sarah Brown for being here this evening. We're really especially delighted to have them here. Now, I've known Ngozi for more than 20 years. Uh, we were colleagues together at the World Bank uh, and worked with each other in different incarnations when I was at the Department for International Development and she was finance minister. And I still remember the day that Ngozi told me she was going off to leave the relatively comfortable life of the World Bank to go and be <laughs> finance minister of Nigeria. And I just looked at her and I said, Ngozi, that is one of the hardest jobs in the world. And then she did it twice. <laughs> so I think that is testimony to the kind of, not just courage, but determination uh, that characterizes. And I saw that courage and determination in many incarnations when she was fighting in the World Bank to get it to focus more on what countries wanted uh, themselves and what their priorities were, when she fought tenaciously with help from Gordon Brown for Nigerian debt relief. And then in this last chapter in fighting corruption in Nigeria. And that's what we're here to talk about tonight. Ngozi was determined to root out the corruption that deprived so many poorer Nigerians of the resources of their own country. And there were, as she has described in this book, many people who targeted her, her, herself and her family to get in her way and to stop her from those reforms. Well, they didn't know what they were up against, uh, and she is here to tell the tale. I'm going to ask Ngozi questions for about 45 minutes uh, and then open the floor to the audience to ask her some questions as well. 
So let's start with the causes of things. Uh, in your book, Ngozi, you talk a lot about, we often talk about the consequences of corruption and rather than the root causes. And you may not know this, but the motto of the London School of Economics is to know the causes of things. Uh, so you are in the right place. So my question is, drawing on your experience, how, what do you think the root causes are of corruption, and how can the different types of corruption, political, administrative, economic, legislative, be prevented? How can we get ahead of this? Well, thank you, Minush, and I'm just delighted to be here today and for the wonderful welcome uh, of the London School. This is my second time here, so I had a wonderful time last time, so hopefully we'll have fun again this time. Um, let me just, and I want to thank Gordon, Sarah, and all the friends who are here for, for attending. I can recognize quite a few faces in, in the audience. So the root causes, um, you know, I describe in the book the different types of corruption from administrative, uh, you know, from the literature, you'll know that, so I don't need to go through political, administrative, grand, and small corruption. And it would take uh, quite some time to go through all, but let me illustrate with a couple of examples of root causes, because often people are happy to see the symptoms taken care of, uh, or, or punitive measures, you know, it makes big headlines when people are hauled off to jail, you know, and the media blasts the story, or which is good. I mean, there ought to be consequences and punitive actions, but it's not enough. Because if you don't fix some of the root causes, the next set of people will come in, and with those opportunities, they might do the same. So let's take one very difficult one, where I think there's a dirty little secret. When you talk about political corruption, what leads to much of that? In many of our countries, we champion democracy, which is the only way to go, especially where we have multi-ethnic, multi-dimensional um, societies. You need a, a type of system where people can have voice and they can vote, so it's very good. But the type of democracy we've adopted is costly. In our country, we follow the presidential model. You have to campaign, you have to have money to campaign, and it's a dirty little secret nobody talks about. How do you finance these campaigns? We know that the private sector in many of our countries is not big, robust. Actually, Nigeria does have a fairly large private sector, but it's not as robust as, say, the US or UK or other places. There are countries with even less of a private sector, and yet people want to finance these elections. So where do they turn? And I talk about it partly in the book. So part of the monies that are for the Treasury are diverted to finance political campaigns because we don't have a campaign finance framework or system that works. Is this right? The answer is no, because it leads to all kinds of consequences, including even when you depend on the private sector. There can be state capture in the sense that if the private sector finances, then they expect rewards after. And that's not only in Nigeria or in Africa, even in the UK, even in the US, ambassadorships are awarded, if not contracts. And there are other rewards. 
So I think, I think we need, but in developing countries, it matters more because we can least afford losing those resources. So that's what I mean by root causes. Can we look at some of this? Why is it that that is disappearing? We can look, another root cause I'll just touch on quickly, is institutional. I'm very convinced from the experience I've had in government that quite a, a lot of the corruption we see comes from lack of institutions or very weak institutions, lack of systems and processes. And I devote a chapter in the book to talking about that from the financial sector, but it, it goes, pervades the system from weak and less independent judicial systems in some of our countries on the continent down to weak financial systems and processes. So when we first started in 2004, I was not aware that my country was running a cash-based system. And I give that example, meaning that if you want to pay a ministry, you actually, they would give you their payroll at the end of the month. You would transfer the requisite resources to pay the people to their finance director, to some account, and then they would pay or the police, or the, you know, the system, yes. And so when I found this out, I was shocked, because what's that a recipe for? It's, it's a recipe for, it's a gap, a recipe for corruption. And that's how we got the phenomenon of ghost workers. Because they can give you a payroll and add 10 more people, 15 more people, 20 more people at the end of the month. So the answer to that is to put in a financial uh, an electronic uh, management system for, the, for managing our finances that would help to stem this. I'm not trying to say that these things are 100% perfect or you can't game them, but at least they'll block 75 to 80% of the problem, if not 90. So we put in a government integrated financial management system. But it took almost 10 years to build with the help of DFID, the World Bank, and others. Now, the reason this matters is because this system never existed. We started it in 2004, we com continued to do it in 2011, and by the time we left, 75% of the system was in place and implemented, and the current government could build on it. But do people get excited when you say government integrated financial management <laughs> system? GIFMIS. <laughs> Or do they get excited when you say integrated personnel and payroll system, which is in putting a biometrics? No, their eyes glaze over. What they want to know about corruption is that so-and-so was caught, it's in the headlines, and they were jailed. But if we don't go back, and I'm just giving the financial system as, and build those systems in place, the difference between developed and developing country peoples is not that people here in the UK or US are any more honest or any more corrupt. It's just that they have stronger systems in place. So and from, your from your experience, which of the systems really mattered? Where did you get the biggest impact in terms of fighting corruption, in, in terms of institutional reforms, systemic reforms, process reforms? Where, where was the biggest bang for the buck? Well, the, the, the one that um, I, I think for me, um, the biggest bank, at least in the areas where I had control, was exactly this financial management system. Because it did so many things. Once we put it in place along with the biometric system, 
As I said, it doesn't give 100% of the answer, but it gave a lot. We migrated. We also coupled it with a treasury single account, which migrated all the capital accounts of government into the central bank. And we were starting on the current account when the government lost power. So it gives satisfaction in that, you know, we were able to weed out about 60, more than 60,000 ghost workers. We saved $1.1 billion for government. That's a huge amount. So you can actually quantify uh, the, the, so that was very satisfactory. And we got it to a point where it's irreversible. Mm. Mm. So th that gives a lot of satisfaction. So in the book, you talk a lot about the role of insiders versus outsiders in fighting corruption. And you say in, that in the end, outsiders can only assist, that corruption must be fought by insiders from the inside. What what are the actions that insiders need to do, and how? what advice would you give to insiders? Well, I think the, the reason I say that corruption, because corruption manifests in so many ways and is also linked to the complexity of society. So thinking you can come from outside and be able to fight it isn't going to work. But outsiders have a role. And that role, maybe I can talk more later, is to support, to identify those on the inside who are willing to fight and to see how to support them, both by helping them build the systems they need to build, you know, marshalling the resources, um, and uh, supporting them with technical capacity and so on to, to do that. But those from the inside, uh, what do you need? It's very risky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And like you said, I mean, you know, you're saying I went back twice. It was nuts. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. You did. But I, I did. didn't think that at the time. <laughs> Everybody at the bank who talked to me, all my colleagues thought that. You know, it was, and even from the perspective of Nigerians, many of them thought it was nuts. Why would this woman want to leave such a comfortable job and go to work in government? It must be because she wants to go and steal. Do you understand? That's the way many people thought. So the, I, the idea of public service, yes. the idea of loving your country. I was brought up by my parents, and my father instilled it in us, that education is a privilege. And when you get it, you have to give back in small ways, in big ways. He didn't educate us for us to go and sit in a corner and get rich and get, help nobody. My father is an economist, and an economist of the... I don't want to say worst kind or whatever, but he's the kind where, when I said when I was 9, 10, 11, a teenager, uh, or before I was seen, my friends were going abroad on holiday, right? He was a university lecturer. And I asked him, he said I couldn't go, multiple times, and I was very resentful. And I asked him why. He said, sit down. Mark, I was only 10 years old. He said, this, how much do you think your ticket would cost? I didn't know, of course, so he told me. And he said, now, what's the cost of a secondary education in Nigeria? I didn't know. He told me. He said, now, you go and do that arithmetic. <laughs> Divide that cost of secondary education into the cost of your ticket and tell me how many people it will pay for. And then he sent me off in the corner, and I crying, I did it. And I came back and said, it will pay for four people or five people or whatever. And he said, that's why you're not going anywhere. <laughs> so that's the kind of household I was brought up in. 
you know, to, to, not be, to not be extravagant, to think of other people, to educate and so on. But at home, people have lost that. They've lost faith. They don't believe anyone can serve their country. And it's so sad. So I wanted to do it to show young people that it actually still exists. There are people who love their country and who want to serve. So that was why I went. So I was a little bit crazy, mm. but I had a very strong reason. Mm. The second reason was also that I felt I had knowledge. Yes. When President Obasanjo invited me, I had some knowledge in how to do debt relief on debt mm. issues. Mm. And as you mentioned before, you know, I had the help of Gordon and some other friends to be able to. But that debt relief, do you know when we first started, President Obasanjo said to me that his dream was to press a button and know how much Nigeria owed each country. We didn't even know how much we owed who and what the debt service each one should be because seven agencies were managing the debt. We were able, when I was advisor, to bring all this debt together, clean up the thing, put it in one agency called the Debt Management Office, create that, and the dream of pressing a button happened. So those are some of the examples of why. It wasn't because everybody wants to go and go and steal. You should use your expertise to serve if you can. So what, what should people do to support the brave, crazy people like you who are willing to go back and stand up and take on these difficult reforms? So I just want to say one thing, Minouche, because I'm not the only brave, crazy person, and it's not only people from outside. They're actually brave, crazy people inside the country. The majority of Nigerians, as I say in the book, are honest, hardworking people who just want to get on with their lives. They just want government to give them some basic services. They are very entrepreneurial. And there are many of them who are brave, who want to stand up for the right thing. But they, are, but they don't have any support. They are like a, a, a crowd of one, <laughs> you know. So what we, those who want to support from the outside, um, you know, when donors are working in a country, they pretty much get to meet a lot of people trying to do reforms in different agencies. It doesn't have to be an overall overwhelming reform. But for me, even if you can find an agency where someone wants to do the right thing, in providing services to the public without asking people to pay under the table, mm -hmm. support them, give them the capacity, give them the moral support, give them, often they don't have other people who are, knowledge, you know, who are experienced to work with them. And DFID did quite a lot of that in, uh, in, in your days, yeah. and even now. So I think that kind of support is very important. Um, but I have to, Minush, one of the things that is that donors are not as discerning. Okay, so when they discern, it helps. But they're not always discerning. Mm. I think internationally, and I'll count myself among, we've become lazy. You know, we like the easy narrative the good guy and the bad guy. Let's identify who is the good guy who is going to lead this country, and the bad guy who doesn't. Uh, the good people and the bad people. Do you understand? They don't take the time to understand the complexities of a country like Nigeria. Working in Nigeria and running it <laughs> for any president or any minister is a minefield. Every day you navigate it when you wake up. You don't know what group is going to say you did this that you didn't do. 
You don't know what person is going to accuse. It's a minefield. So we need to study that more. I think as international support, what we can do from outside is be more humble. Mm. The three-week mission isn't going to help. We really need, and, and when you send people in country, they should also not just circulate among themselves, which a lot of donors do. They really need to get to know the society and mix with people, go in the rural areas, understand the complexities of religion, ethnic group, and everything else that happens, and then tease out how best you can help. So that's uh, a little humility. What about um, the, the dilemma, I think, that many, many people in on the donor side faces, when you see someone who's a good reformer and mm. people often pile in and get behind them, yes. and then if inevitably that person gets pushed out of the system yeah. and you have to start from scratch, right. what's the right answer? Do you back good people or do you focus on systems, the public financial management, the procurement, the really boring stuff yeah. that in the end constrains bad behavior? Yeah, I think both, but I think it's better to focus on systems not on people. Mm. I, I also have a problem with how people focus we become in, in, in the international community. And um, in this international community, you, know, you also need to be careful in countries because the people who are corrupt are also very good. They're very smart. Mm -hmm. They can masquerade as reformers. And if you pile behind them, absolutely, just like they can create NGOs and CSOs that mimic the real thing. So I'm being very frank here. And donors often make the mistake. They see reformer and then they pile behind. They don't do their homework. So we need to do all of that. So I'm not necessarily saying that you pile behind every reformer you see. We should pile behind creation of systems, processes, building institutions. But of course, you need someone who is willing to do that. That's, so that's the thing. Do you have somebody who is capable, willing? And often it need not be the minister. It could be even below that level. But who is willing to work with you and stay the long haul and deliver on building systems? I think that's where international community can help. And what about, let, let's spend a minute to talk about the personal bravery and the difficulties. So in your book, you talk a lot, you describe, you start with the extraordinary example of your mother being kidnapped in an attempt to try and get you to resign as finance minister. And you also later on talk about the really harsh personal attacks you faced in the press almost daily. Mm -hmm. um, how did you sustain your resilience through those periods? Mm -hmm. It was hard. It really was. I mean, sometimes you look at it and, you know, it all sounds very easy on paper. But in real life, it was very difficult. I think I sustained it by knowing that I was trying my best to do the right thing. I had others working with me, and I want to stress that, you know, that it's not just Ngozi Okonjiwala delivering. There were people in the economic team who also believed and worked hard. There were people in my ministry who wanted to do the right thing and did and worked hard. So I had some people around me, my personal staff, the ministry staff, the, uh, some of the ministry staff and some of the economic team members who were of like mind 
And I want to pay tribute to them. I, 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 I really want to stress that because often people focus on me, me. I know I wrote the story, but their support was equally important. And some of the things I did, I could not even have done also if I didn't have support from the top. Uh, top. But I said that was the irony of the situation you know, I was in. I was never blocked from you know, fighting and trying to put things in place. But I know elsewhere in the system, things were also not uh, going right. So I had to focus. Nigeria is a large country, and we are, not, we are talking of the federal level. We haven't even talked of the decentralized state level. So you, you choose the things, and you know what you're doing, and you're resilient and focused in doing them. So that was one. Holding your head high, knowing you, in spite of everything being said, you know you, can, you have not done anything, and I often joke to people, they, if they want to know how much I have, they can go to the Bank Fund Credit Union at <laughs> the World Bank. That's where, that, that's where you bank. <laughs> you know, they, they can just go there, they'll see all my transactions. So there's nothing to hide. When you know that, you go with your head held high. So that helped. But above all, I had the support of family and friends. And my family was just fantastic. Because they too were under a lot of stress. And Mark, most of them never wanted me to come back. Actually, the only champion was my father. So you can see my father has an enormous influence on me. I look exactly like him, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> and people say I think I behave like him. But, you know, he thought the second time around, you know, the first time was not easy. But the second time was, it was very um, difficult to make that decision. My husband and children were lukewarm because... It wasn't easy. My siblings were 100% against it. Because I have three brothers, as I say in the book, at home running their own businesses. And when I was minister, they accused them of all sorts of... Everything they did was because I was minister. So they didn't want me anywhere near Nigeria. <laughs> but it was my father who thought that if there was a chance to help build systems, if there was a chance to help grow the economy and change, I should come. So I went. <laughs> and so that gave me a lot of support and resilience. But when I was finally there, even those family members who were not supportive came around. And, you know, they re that really helped me. So I think focus, knowing what you're doing, believing in yourself, um, uh, keeping yourself clean, and those around you as much as you can, and then just trying to deliver. I also understood that I couldn't solve everything. Yes. And it was that dilemma that was difficult to deal with sometimes. And you know, many Nigerians will, will say to me, oh, why didn't you leave and resign? That was the easiest solution. I could have just gotten up. I resigned the first time. I wouldn't go into that. I could have gotten up and walked away. But when I saw that there was such intense desire for me to leave and resign, I decided that I must be doing something. You know, when people kidnap your mother so you can resign, they told me to go and announce my resignation on TV. When they want to disable you so you'll no longer be able to work, work, work and leave the country, when every day everybody is asking you why you haven't resigned. Yes, I decided there must be something Okonjiwala is doing. So that's why I stayed. For those who want to know, why didn't you resign? I could have. 
But I didn't. And at the end of the day, I say in the book that if you total up the amount you were able to, if you want to quantify it, since we are all people who deal with numbers, you know, it actually, you know, could amount to about $9 billion. That's no small change. As we say in economics, that's not trivial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, the nine billion dollar woman. Let me uh, <laughs> <laughs> saved, not accumulated. I should say. <laughs> let me uh, let me. I think turn to the audience for some questions. I'll take them in batches of three, and then uh, let Ngozi uh, take them in uh, in the in that order. The young gentleman here. Uh, I'm looking for a woman. Sorry, we have a tradition. Yes, there you go. The young lady there, and the gentleman next to her. So I'll take three there. Good evening. I am um, Victor Aboga. I'm a Nigerian. I'm studying at the LSC, MSc African Development. You said something about the dignity of public service, and I agree with you. But you know from first-hand experience that it's not as simple as it sounds. You had a number of confrontations as you, as you worked as the Minister of Finance, especially with the Governor's Forum. And the crude oil account you set up is a case in point. And at a point, you were forced to succumb. So what um, piece of advice do you have for a young technocrat, probably from the LSC, that has this um, <laughs> desire to impact his country, but is concerned that the powers that be may push against this reform? Mm-hmm. I might not have enough stamina to face this. These authorities are built up already. Thank you. Very good. The young lady behind. Hi. My name is Alyssa Audis. Good to see you. Hi, Alyssa. How are you? Good. Thank you. <laughs> great. Great talk. Um, so I kind of wanted to ask you something about what you were talking about with top-down power, because we know that it makes a big difference when you're being pulled up, you know, from above versus being pushed up from below. So for people in government in Nigeria, in, in the world, how do you think it's best to move the needle when you don't have any support from above? Okay. And the gentleman next to you, maybe if you could pass the mic. Um, th- thank you very much indeed. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. Um, I'm now a business risk consultant. I've worked in sub-Saharan Africa and used to be the UK Customs Service intelligence analyst covering the ex-Soviet uh, Union states. I thought your comment, it's a long time since I've heard a single sentence comment which gets to the nub of so much of the problems when you said the three-week mission has to stop. There's far too much of that, and it's, a, it's, it's an insult to everyone. Um, thank you. My question is, um, given that we've now got the arrival big time on the world economic scene, of the hard men and their proxies from greater China and greater Russia, and not just from there. How effective do you think the measures being taken in developing countries, the developed countries which often act as a transit point for um, the corruption and the, re- the proceeds of resource leading, and particularly international organizations as well in dealing with this. Uh, I do believe while the UK measures on uh, ultimate beneficial ownership and unexplained wealth orders 
are a big step forward and the UK has got an awful lot to answer for. I do believe there is a big gap that too many people see it only as in the source countries and the Anglosphere and don't pay enough attention to continental Europe, the Gulf and the proxy centers for Greater China. Thank you. Thank you. Ngozi, three, three big questions. Okay. Uh, thank you very much. Very good questions. Um, on public service, uh, for, you're absolutely right. Uh, yes, there's the dignity of service, but like I said, it's very, very difficult sometimes. Because even when, if you study abroad and go back, people don't always welcome you with open arms. Partly because they feel we've been here toiling away and you've been in the diaspora. Who are you to come and tell us what to do? So I think when you go, you must also go with a certain amount of humility. Um, but there's no right time. People keep saying, when is the right time to go? How can I go? I think you just need to make up your mind that I want to serve. And the way, and you can serve in different ways, by the way. I just want to start off by saying it doesn't always have to be in public service. You can serve in a non-governmental organization as long as you're making a difference in people's lives. You can serve in the private sector. We need people everywhere. As long as you're creating value and helping create jobs, those are also valid. So I don't mean to say that it's only in the public service. In our countries, we need good people everywhere. Private sector corruption is a huge issue, and the collusion of private and public sector and corruption is real. So I'm not, it's not public sector, the public sector alone. But when you go, um, what I advise people is perhaps find, try to be discerning. If you can find an agency that is more technocratic in nature, where your expertise and skills can actually be used, you can start there. Because if you go in and get buried in the deep public service, maybe doing things that don't use your expertise and seeing things that are demoralizing, that doesn't work. So if you can find a more technically oriented place where you can actually use your skills, I would start there. And then don't be discouraged. Because that's the biggest thing. You find people who go in and they're so discouraged. Just go with the mindset that it's going to be rough. Inoculate yourself first. <laughs> and then go and try and do it. On the question of how do you move without support from above, um, Alisa, it's very difficult. I mean, if you want to make large changes... There's absolutely no doubt that if you don't have support from above, at least, if not support, you're not interfered with, you can't do anything. Because from above, you can be blocked every step of the way. So that's why I make the point that if I had not been left alone, I wasn't blocked in making the changes, I wouldn't have been able to make them. So I'm not, it's not that there was some kind of Ngozi army charging in, you know, all by herself. Obviously, the president, you know, allowed me to do it. So that has to be said. President Jonathan did not stop me from any of these actions. And I make that very clear. But for small changes, you don't always need help from the top. You can also act bottom up. Certainly, having integrity and dignity yourself does not need support from the top. It begins with you. 
So I say to everybody, they say, what can I do in fighting this corruption? I say it begins with you. If you yourself refuse to pay someone for a service or refuse to accept something, you're already fighting. And for the young people in the country, the reason I wrote this is so they can know all the ways that things happen. Because people don't understand the processes. And then take responsibility and say, oh, it will begin with me in my little corner. And don't say, oh, what can little me do because there's corruption here and there. Go home every day. If you work in that place and render service and you're able to say, I'm not accepting this or I'm not taking that, you're already doing so much. You're already making a huge difference. So that's what I would say. So bottom up, you can do something. Then finally, on the issue of the international uh, aspect of this and the community, I do agree with you. It's not only in the uh, Western countries that we need to look. Obviously, the areas you mentioned in the, in the islands, the Gulf, um, you know, some parts of East Asia, some countries. We need to look because other centers, when there was the heat became substantial in the Western countries, obviously people found other countries, be it Gulf, China, anywhere else, where they could hide their monies. And you're right, attention is often not paid to these places. So we need to look at those and say, what are they doing? But I still feel that the international community and the Western world is not doing enough. We've moved a long way from 10 years ago or five years ago with the issue here of the beneficial ownership, the registers, and so on and so forth, all the work done by OECD on these issues, and even on tax evasion and tax avoidance. So we are moving, but I often joke, it takes something happening in the West for them, for, it takes them feeling the impact of something for them to move. In the old days when we used to talk about this issue of tax evasion in our countries and tax avoidance and illegal, it didn't get much of a hearing. The issue was, oh, you know, perhaps you are doing something wrong or you're not managing your systems. But when the financial cri global financial crisis came and there, was, there were resource constraints and people were looking everywhere and it suddenly emerged that People in UK were hiding their money in Switzerland and Luxembourg, and people in Germany were, and there were all these leaks. Huge interest then arose on these issues. Good. So we now have OECD and others working on it, but we need more. We actually have UN conventions, the United Nations Con Convention Against Corruption, that provide a framework, if you read it, to take all actions to release stolen assets of countries and to be much more vigorous in all these issues of preventing illegal assets from uh, accruing in your countries. But Western countries are still not doing enough and we need to push them. Ngozi, can I ask that, a question on that? Because you, I know you worked a lot on stolen assets. And the reality is the amount of assets that were returned were very, very small because people got trapped in a legal quagmire. Mm -hmm and the criminals have very good lawyers. Um, what's your view on how much one should pursue stolen assets through legal channels? I think that my view is that there's much more room for countries to release stolen assets, but they're not willing to 
to, use that to use that discretion. Yeah, that political will does not exist. We don't. What happens is that they often say, "Oh, you know, yes, we have the convention. We've signed up up to it. We've ratified it." But our legal system takes precedence. And that gives those who have stolen the monies the recourse to go to that legal system, hire fancy lawyers, and sue the, put in whatever suit, and then it drags on for years. And, and where is the money? It's in some bank being invested in something and making any money for some organization. So it's very, very unfair. Mm. And I think the world really needs to move, move much faster. And it's not only the monies. There are also assets and properties. Of course, you respect people's rights, but look at all the other assets they are and return them to the countries. And by the way, some countries are saying they'll charge huge percentages when they return the money. They try to take a cut. <laughs> <laughs> the UK, the US, you know. <laughs> they take a cut They're taking for services, you know. <laughs> Performed. Okay, fine, but it has to be a very small cut because this is like the country's being ripped off twice. That's right. And then the third thing is when the monies are returned, I think those countries returning have a point that they have to make sure that the monies returned are really put to good use again and they are not stolen. You know, and, and in my own case, I joke because when we had monies returned, the Swiss said the World Bank should monitor. It was out of that experience we created the stolen assets recovery. Mm. And the World Bank monitored the return of 500 million to Nigeria when I was finance minister under President Obasanjo. And then the NGOs monitored. And a book was written about it. But till today, if you ask people, they will say, oh, no, 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 no. This is what some of those people do to obfuscate issues. They will claim nobody knows where these monies went. And yet there were people monitoring, and it's all been written down in books. But they know many people wouldn't take the trouble to read. So I think those three elements are there. Don't charge the countries. Don't take away again money from them. Return their monies fast. Don't let your legal system become, become an excuse to bog down the return of pro assets. And then, yes, do insist that the assets be monitored in terms of their use when they are returned. Okay, very good. Let's go back to questions. Gentleman in the back, the lady here, and the gentleman here. And again, if you could introduce yourself briefly. Um, hi, my name is Alagun Akilwe. Uh, I'm a journalist and political analyst. Um, first of all, thank you for being here today. Um, you are truly an inspiration to people with a high level of love for Nigeria and those wanting a better country in general. So thank you, f uh, first of all. Um, I, I'm a political analyst by trade. I'm ec economics, I have a somewhat grasp of it, but not a high level. So my question will be more p political um, related. Um, you were amongst the first people to return to Nigeria after the return to democracy in 99, um, if I'm to be correct, of the highest level, the Minister of the Finance. Um, and you returned again under good luck as the coordinating Minister of the Economy, which was even a bigger brief. Um, in comparison to the Abbasanjar administration, um, Abbasanjar was known to be an autocrat and somebody who took a firm approach on things, and good luck was known to be maybe mildly, um, aloof isn't the right word, but not as hands-on. Comparing both of their tenures and both their administrations, 
Um, which one fought corruption more and uh, which one? No, 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 you have to ask. Um, uh, this is, uh, this is um, experience um, right here. Um, um, we will have to learn which president and which approach and which leader was an incubator of corruption fighting or who was more, you know, um, amiable to the underhand. Okay. That's a trick question. Very tricky question. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you know. I'll, I'll give you some time to think about that answer. I'll give you some time. Uh, there was a, a woman here. Was, where was that? There was you and there was a woman in the back, exactly. Why don't we take this gentleman and then we can get a mic to the person in the back. Um, thank you, Doctor. I uh, just wanted to say I'm also a, an ec economist by training, although not from the LSE. Um, my question is actually quite... That's simple. not a crime. <laughs> Close, but not, not point completely. Out. Um, my name is Falarian Lapite. I'm uh, English as well as Nigerian. Uh, my question is really, when I look at Nigeria and many sub-Saharan African countries who have corruption, I think we look at corruption almost as if they're the only countries that have it. There are lots of countries which are further in the development path or now I'd say maybe even developed but they've also fought corruption. I want to know what's your thoughts on why countries like Nigeria haven't been able to see widespread growth throughout the economy the way other countries, for instance, maybe China, India, although not fully rich maybe, but um, they have seen much more d development despite having high levels of corruption in places as well. Okay, thank you. Lady in the back. Good evening. Thank you very much for that very fascinating uh, talk. My name is Pallavi Roy, and I'm a lecturer in international economics at SOAS, down the road. We're neighbors. Uh, my question is really on the EFCC. The EFCC was, you know, when it started at its inception, it was the gold standard in terms of anti-corruption agencies. You had the ICPC before that, but it was really the EFCC. Um, it, it became uh, something that case studies were written about. But how do you stop a commission like that or an agency like that from being captured by political interests, as you can see, happening now. And the second related question, does increased prosecution always mean lessened corruption? Or does that also become an excuse for political witch hunting? It's something that we see across the board in developing countries. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay. Um, so I'm not going to enter into a comparison of presidents. <laughs> I'm totally not competent to do that. What I can tell you is that the two presidents had two very different styles. And so they managed issues vastly differently. Um, but I can say that under each, you know, the, the, the thing about Nigeria, there's a book called This Present Darkness that uh, many of you, that describes a very dark picture of Nigeria from the time it got independence till present times that paints a, a picture of a country, every administration, and it's even said in the book, I quote it, that every administration in Nigeria has either been accused of corruption or if not when they're in power, but when they leave. So it has, it's been the thing that the issue of corruption in Nigeria has been there, and every administration has tried in their way to fight it, some more successfully than others. So that's what I will say, and I think you, you need to look at the evidence of what was done. Certainly, I think, as I say in the book, that in the second administration, we, we didn't get communications right. 
so that even the, whatever was done, people didn't even know it was happening. So you need to send the right signals from the top. You need to make it clear to people what you stand for, and then you need to actually execute. And I don't think we've gotten 100% right in anyone, but somewhere more successful. Let's leave it at that. Because if you start making comparisons, then you have to do it all the way. So I'm not going to, to uh, get into that. Now, there's a question about other countries. Why have other countries fought? Who, how have they managed to grow? These other countries had corruption, like China, there was corruption, and yet China managed to grow. And if the, the fact that in the past three decades, the world has cut the poverty level by more than half is due largely to the success in China and the phenomenal uh, and amazing growth that China has seen. So this is like a tutorial in development. <laughs> First, uh, you, you, it is um, when you say develop with corruption, I'll first start by telling you that the best is to develop without corruption or with minimal corruption because any level of corruption diverts the resources from development. But there are many reasons why countries develop faster than others. And I'll just mention two or three because we would be in a tutorial all day. Let me mention one that people don't think about very often that is not solely economic where you have a society that has more cohesion, where there's a social contract between the people and their leaders, where the society has a vision for itself, for the future, they are likely to do better. What has happened in many of our countries in Africa is there's no social contract. People don't trust the leaders, leaders don't trust the people. We don't have one vision of where the country should go. We have multiple visions, so much lack of trust, so much suspicion. And that leads to the point where if you have people who could do an excellent job somewhere, they may not be allowed to do that job simply because maybe someone from another group leads that section, and then they'll say, no, I'd rather have people from my group. And then you lose the expertise. And I can even illustrate with myself. You look in the book, and you see that, and it continues, these lies. Once you're in position, then people look around to see who is working in your ministry, who is working here. And they start accusing you of bringing only people from your tribe or your ethnic group. And trust is lost immediately, even when it's manifestly not true. When I was there, people who were hired well before I got into the position, but because they were from the same ethnic group, it became that Okonji Iwala hired all of them. And even the head of AMCON, when former Governor Sanusi, who is now the Emir, came up and said, I hired him. People didn't want to accept that because he was Igbo, and I'm Igbo, they all believed that I filled the place with it. So that's an illustration of the lack of trust. In countries that have cohesion, you're likely to have a common purpose. So that's one. Two, 
policy consistency. Most of our countries have discontinuities in policy, and you're not going to develop with policy inconsistency. When in, in a one government comes because there's no overarching vision for where to take the country, the first thing they do is put aside all the policies. Now, it's naive to think that a new government will come and immediately adopt everything their predecessor did. They won't. But you don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. There ought to be some policies agreed among all politicians of all persuasions that, look, these are the basic things we need to do to get this country right and to move this country forward. And you see it in many countries, in some of the Asian countries. It's there, I'm not saying all. So when politicians come in, they continue along the same path. They may deliver it slightly differently, but it is the same policy to get this country to where it's going. You know, in the U.S., you may see different presidents come and go, but they know they want the U.S. to be the number one economy, isn't it? So they may use different approaches, and they may look like they're not a planned economy. But somewhere there's some think tank thinking of what AI, new artificial intelligence, what new technologies, where the U.S. is going. And they will all be behind it. So I think I'll just use those two to illustrate to you that they are different they are, they are factors. And until we in our African countries can agree two things, we need to be more cohesive. We need to let excellence thrive sometimes. I'm not saying all the time, sometimes, where it matters. Just to get the country going, it's so painful to see countries that have so much potential being held behind. Because we are small-minded, we don't let excellence thrive, and we don't want to pursue policies that take countries forward. The third question on, yeah, EFCC. Well, I've said I don't want to comment too much. I'm no longer in government, so I should be very prudent. Um, but the, it is a shame, you know, any institution that is created and is undermined in any country, because it's happening in the developed countries too. Institutions and rules and processes are being undermined. And that's what's disheartening, by the way, to see developed countries also going the wrong way. So it's not, it's, uh, it's those institutions are what separate the sheep from the goats. So I agree with you that when you create these institutions, they should not be politicized in any way, shape, or form. Let, it's part of what I was saying about who, which countries develop and which ones don't. Those countries that are able to recognize that there are certain institutions, including the judiciary, that should not be politicized so that people can feel they have recourse to justice somewhere. Those should be left alone, and there should be some kind of agreement that you don't interfere with certain institutions. Unfortunately, we don't have... Um, these things, and I fear that, that corruption is being trivialized. What do I mean by that? It's being politicized. You see it by all means, if a politician of whatever party, opposition, or in government has been corrupt, go for them. 
but don't use it as a weapon. It's now, in some cases, a weapon. So politicians now know that if you want to get rid of someone, just get up, accuse them of corruption, make big headlines. Sometimes they don't even follow up with prosecution. But a person is tried in the media, and then their reputation is damaged, they have to step aside. At least follow it through. You understand? So we should not trivialize corruption because it's a huge issue. We should not politicize it. We should be very professional about the way that we fight. I agree with you 100%. Okay, let's go back. Eric and... Sorry? Oh, fair enough, fair enough. Let me take this question up here, and then I'll take two questions up there. Uh, Eric uh, Bergloff at the Institute of Global Affairs. Uh, so it ties to your, your um, last comment, and you, you, you very eloquently before described the relationship between outsiders and insiders, and outsiders should help insiders. And, and looking at some of the efforts that are now done by outsiders in terms of establishing corruption courts or corruption agencies that are supported by development aid and, and you know you have even in Ukraine you have competing you know have domestic agencies and then you have donor supported agencies that compete to fight corruption you have Guatemala now which has a very major effort to, to fight corruption how do you see these external attempts to to okay. push out corruption gentlemen thank you so much madam thank you my name is Andy Aiden I came to England when I was 15 and now I'm 53. Mm. I have an MBA from the University of Wales. I run my own business. I'd love to go back to Nigeria. But I think Nigeria is a failed state. The, things, the two things you mentioned just now are, are so pivotal. There's distrust. The amalgamation of Nigeria by the British was a huge mistake. Bringing the North and the South, two different entities, two different peoples, a total mistake. And I think um, there's, there's, a, there's a, wide, a, a, a wise saying, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Nigeria is like a, a polygamous home, a polygamous family. We, we have no suspicion from the Western Yoruba to the Igbos to the North. It cannot stand. I think one way and corruption just is... is, 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 is like a, ask a question? Yes, madam. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think um, if we... Got, went back to our regional governance where we can, you know, look at our leaders, choose our leaders without this distrust. The Yoruba region, the Eastern region, the Northern region, do you think then it gives us a chance to at least to, to, to focus on our leaders and have some element of control and make Nigeria or the regions a, a great as they could be? Okay, thank you very much. The gentleman to your, over to the other side. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Demila Deoshiseku. I'm a evening scholar at um, um, UCL. My question is around <clears throat> the, running the economy in Africa. What I've observed is the president have a lot of clout, but the, whoever is the minister of finance actually has a lot of work to do in, regulate, in ensuring there's economic progress. I want to ask, what are the things, in your opinion, that makes a, an effective finance minister? What are the things that a finance minister needs to have to be effective. We look, across Africa, a lot of them have PhDs, have very great education, but what are the real things that, that are necessary for a finance minister to be effective and successful? Thank you. 
I'm going to ask Gordon Brown to answer that question. That's a great idea. A great <laughs> That's idea. A, it's a good question. Okay. Maybe I, actually, I'm going to. I'm going to get. Gordon, would you like to answer that question, or what makes it? We can get. Them right? I'm not kidding. No. You have to help out because he, he did not say an effective finance minister in Nigeria. He said an effective finance minister. Exactly. These and are two of the longest-serving <laughs> finance ministers in the world because to, finance ministers don't last very they long. They don't last long. Life. And to that, I have to tell a joke of Gordon's. You know, when I became finance minister the first time and I reached my third year, I was talking to him. He said, how long have you been finance minister now? I said, three years. He said, oh, congratulations, you know. Uh, you're, and I said, what do you mean? He said, oh, you're one of the oldest serving finance <laughs> And Gordon had actually somehow measured that the average life of a finance minister is two years. It's one of the toughest jobs. So we are starting from the third question, since we are on it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, you know your colleagues don't like you because you're in the business of either curtailing or saying no. And at some point in time, your boss doesn't like you either. Because you also have to say no sometimes to uh, requests and demands. So I'll say one or two things I think you need, but I'd, l I'd really like Gordon to comment on it because he's the longest serving and famous chancellor of the Exchequer. Um, I love Trevor Manuel also served Trevor. a very long time and al Asaf in uh, Saudi Arabia That's right. also. But for me, um, as a finance minister, you've got to have two or three things. You have to have some skills. I'm not saying necessarily that you have to be an economist, but you have to know something about what policy levers move the economy, especially in a developing country. It matters so much that you understand what monetary and fiscal policy can do, what structural reform is all about. So you need some skills because the economy needs to be moved. And if you don't know those things, you're not going to know how to go about it. This can be learned. So I'm not saying everybody who is finance minister has to be an economist or go, to go and get a PhD. No. There are people famous who have been finance ministers who are not economists. But you have to have that knowledge somehow in a developing country. Maybe a developed one, you can get, do, do less. Second, I think you have to have extraordinarily thick skin. <laughs> it's a huge requirement. If you're thin-skinned, you cannot be a finance minister because you're going to get attacked day in, day out. People are going to not like you. They're not. And I always said to people, I'm not here to be liked. I didn't care if I was liked or not, to be very honest. It's lovely to be liked, but it is better to be, do your job professionally. So even if people don't like you, they feel you delivered. So you need a thick skin to navigate. You need some sense of political skill, and I wasn't very good at that. Because you need to manage the different competing interests. And you need to schmooze with people a little bit. You know, I don't, I don't think I was seen as that kind of person. So my political skills were not that good. And people, when I went off to keep working, people saw it as arrogant. She doesn't want to mix with us and so on. So you need some political skills. You need trust with your boss and respect. Because you've got to be able to convince the boss many times that some of the advice is being given or she is being given on the economy 
just doesn't make sense or doesn't work or certain expenditures should not be made or you should hold back. So I think those are three or four elements that I, I think are necessary. So Gordon, do you want to say anything? <laughs> I used to say the, the, there's only two kinds of finance minister. There are those who fail and there are those who get out just in time. <laughs> I, you, 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 were the, you were the exception. I, I managed uh, to survive for um, uh, 10 years and the only person who survived longer than me in Britain uh, managed to do so because when he was about to be sacked in the 19th century, he abolished income tax and made himself suddenly popular. <laughs> I was never able to do that. I, I don't think we should underestimate the personal achievement of uh, Ngozi. Anybody who reads the first chapter of a book and sees, and you, you haven't really uh, described this this evening, and uh, I think people must read the chapter, the pressure that Ngozi was under when her mother was kidnapped, when there was a threat to her life, when they were demanding that she resign and, and leave the country, and then she stood up to all that, is just a measure of both her personal courage and a strength of uh, willpower uh, to do something important for Nigeria. So and Ngozi has not only been a great finance minister, she's also uh, been chairman and is chairman of Gavi, the vaccination facility which has vaccinated 500 million children and saved 5 million lives. She's been on our education commission, has helped build a new facility for education that we hope to do. So uh, you're talking uh, about a finance minister, but more than that, someone who has really uh, got something to say about the future of the world as well as the future of Africa. And I think we should be very proud that we've had you here this evening. Thank you. Mm -hmm. very, nice. very nice. That was not pre-planned. <laughs> if, I, if I'd known that's what you were going to say, we wouldn't have asked you. <laughs> well, thank you, Gordon. Okay, let me go to the uh, first question, which was uh, the very important question asked by Eric about external attempts to support institutions. I, I think that's one that I really think externally, the um, partners have a role. So by saying that only people inside can fight, I'm not trying to imply there's no role. I'm just saying that they cannot be the primary movers in a corruption fight. But they can certainly help build agencies. Now, what you described just now for Guatemala or so? Guatemala, Ukraine. And Ukraine. Where you have agencies building up competing institutions is the worst of all possible worlds. That doesn't work. And that's where, where external donors and supporters, partners, have to come together. And the government needs to take control and say, look, here is the framework within which we want to do our transparency work and our anti-corruption work. Here are the agencies we want created. Now, let's pool our resources and support them. When the government does not have control, that's when you have this kind of, and I don't think that's the kind of external thing. So I would say, that in that case, when donors notice this is happening, they need to go to government and say, we need a framework. And the government needs to take charge. And then they can indeed help build those institutions because we need them. And you will be surprised often in the budget, you may not get the resources to put those institutions in place. So it can help to have some support from the outside. Then peop uh, um, the skills, capacity building, and support is also very important. Um, 
On the issue of external support, sorry, Minush, I wanted to say one more thing. Mm. One of the things that I, w I tried to say at the end of the book is looking at what happened to me. I was able to come out of it because I'd had a career of 25 years at the World Bank. I think people knew who I was. So when all these attacks were happening, you know, when they said, oh, you, you know, you, you, you took a billion dollars. So that day, my husband was in Washington, and he saw this through the internet. So he called me and said, why am I still paying a mortgage? <laughs> you know, my husband is in the audience, and that really helped to diffuse the tension. Because, of course, I was feeling quite angry. This is ridiculous. And he said, why are we still paying a mortgage on this house? You know, why haven't we gone on holiday somewhere, you know? You know, so I've lost my train of thought. <laughs> no, that you had external support. You know, so I had external support. I shouldn't look at him. <laughs> um, you know, so I, I, I came out, and so many people believed in me. It was amazing. And it was a savior. No, they did not believe I'd done anything. And people went out of their way. I came out and I got six job offers. And almost everybody was trying to do something to make up for what I'd been through. It was the most affirming. And it wasn't only the international community. African presidents reached out and said, do you want to come and work with us? Do you want to help us? So from my own region, I felt very proud. Now, I ask you, so, but I said to myself, after feeling good and proud, I was sad. Because what if you have someone who doesn't have that kind of external knowledge, people don't know them, they don't have the support, and yet they're inside fighting? What about those kinds of people? Who will help them? So it came to this idea that one of the things we could do about external support is to create fellowships on a standing basis for people who are fighting internally, but sometimes they need to run out because the heat becomes too much. For them to know that there is a safety net. So I'm very passionate about trying to create this safety net, a fund that just funds fellowships, let them come out for a year. You know, when John Gitongo had to run out from Kenya, he had nothing, and something had to be organized quickly in Oxford. When Nuhu Ribadu had to leave Nigeria at one point, he had nothing, and with his wife and six children. And something had to be organized quickly. I was at the World Bank then, and with Center for Global Development, we got together with the government of Norway and arranged an 18-month fellowship. But for a while, he had nothing to feed his children or, or, or know what to do. Why do we have to have that? If we could get together and have this support, then people will feel more courageous. They don't need people to know them outside for them to survive. So that's one of the external supports. So Eric, I need you to, to, for us to get together and put this fund together. <laughs> and LSE can offer one or two fellowships. <laughs> Actually, we do have funds for scholars who are being persecuted around the world. So okay. we always have scholars at the LSE. Yeah. You're taking one. Yeah. Good. I need to learn more about We need to create this. Thank you very much. And then finally, on my brother, um, who said that... Uh, 
Nigeria is a failed state, and you feel very passionate. It's a huge mistake, the amalgamation. Maybe, but the Brits have done what they've done. So we are where we are. I think you have a point in what you're saying, and I know there's clamor for restructuring now. But let us also step back a bit. We are where we are, and Nigeria as one country has huge strengths. We have one of the largest markets on the continent. We have a formidable group of people. I believe that no matter what ethnic group you come from in Nigeria, there are brilliant and good people there. Every single group in the country has such people. So why don't we sit back and say, instead of saying, let us fall apart into different countries, you know, it's a big mistake, let's rectify it by splitting apart. Why don't we do the opposite and say, why don't we step back? I agree with you, we need to step back. We cannot continue the way we are. We do need to step back and, and reflect on what is it we have that is positive. You know, Nigerians spend a lot of time reflecting on the negative about their country. And I always tell Nigeria, I love Nigeria so much, I don't know why. <laughs> because it's one of the most difficult and complex countries, but I love it. And therefore, for me, it's not an option to say, let us split apart. The option is to say, what are the positives we have going for us? We are the largest country on the continent. We have very entrepreneurial population that can do so much. We have some natural resources, and we have human resources. Nigeria should not have an excuse of not having human resources. How can we pull all of this together to make a better country and build trust? How can we leave behind all the jingoism and the ethnic? How do we allow our politicians? You talked of the British, but we are also now guilty. Politicians, it's very easy for them to divide us by ethnic group. And it's amazing, we have stereotypes of each other. The Yorubas think the Igbos behave this way. The Igbos think the Yorubas behave this way. The Igbos and Yorubas feel the Northerners behave that way. Stereotypes that are wrong. We, so how can't we start a conversation in the country to be very honest with ourselves about the things we are doing wrong, and then be, but I want us to focus on the positives. What is it that is positive about Nigeria? That's what keeps me going. And then from there we can build rather than split apart. Very good. I'll take the gentleman up there. This will have to be the last round uh, here and the lady in the back. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Dapo Iwali, LSE alum, um, 2003. Um, I won't ask you, ma, about your experience. Where are you, that one? I'm right up here, ma. <laughs> I hid here intentionally. Hi, that one. How are you? Great to see you again, ma. Yeah. Um, I won't ask you about corruption within the government because I had a front row seat seeing you navigate this uh, treacherous waters, and I say massfully as, uh, It was as in well. the Ministry of Planning. Yes, ma, the Nigerian Planning finance. Commission, the Nigerian All right, ma'am. Um, but my question, Ma, is they say that, you know, a seed cannot grow in infertile soil. And my question is a bit more around the non-state actors. Um, to what extent did you have pressure, not from within the political class, 
but within the civic society, within society itself, when people come offering you all kinds of deals, asking to lubricate the process, shadow for you, and things of that nature, did you find that even though you were withstanding pressure from within the political class, that there was a whole lot more pressure coming from kin and kindred? Mm -hmm. um, then I'm going to flip this. Sec um, uh, my second question is a flip on the other question about the help you get from international actors. Um, I've been doing uh, interviews for my doctoral uh, research, as you know, and one of the things that has been coming up, perhaps, is a perception of that is the international development aid industry, um, the, the development sector itself, um, culpable and involved in some forms of corruption. And I know that you oversaw uh, the coordination of international financial institutions in Nigeria, and of course, with their role in Gavi Alliance. Did you find any of those um, scenarios where external actors were actually more involved in corruption um, than actually helping. Thank you very much, ma'am. Okay, thank you. The lady here. Hi, my name is Emily. I'm a student at LSHGM. I'm a health economist. So my question is about cohesion and countries taking power. I feel like there is a lot of influence from organ global organization like World Bank and IMF, and more and more right now we see that all those, like for example, President Ouattara, it was a very good, crit big critique, the fact that he was coming from those organizations. So at your time it was a good thing, but now coming from there actually can be seen as something negative by the population, where they feel like, oh, those are those people keep changing what we're supposed to do, and so they are influencing the cohesion in our countries, and like, building on that corruption. So what would be your advice actually for young people who are aspiring maybe to work there but also to work back home? Thank you. And the young lady in the back. Hi, good evening. My name's Eki. I am a recent, I just completed my LPC at BPP and studied political science at Stanford. Thank you so much for your time. And my question is, if you're invited a third time, <laughs> would you come? And okay, I'm from Nigeria as well. And um, more interestingly, I'm curious on what mistakes you felt you made or what you would do better because um, I feel like I can learn more from that. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. okay. Thank you. Thank you. Very good questions. Um, that, well, you, you asked about non-state actors and civil society and social and family and clan and the pressures. Um, of course, there, there, there were pressures very many, very much. Uh, outside of the, the governmental pressures, there were pressures from, from, uh, from my, from yes, my uh, extended group, from the clan and so on. And I knew that this might be the case. And it happens everywhere, even in developed countries. I found out that in the US, you know, people could invite their children to do summer interns in the, in the agencies in which they're working, something which, if we did at home, would result in a huge outcry, you know, as nepotism. So there was a lot of pressure, you know, and at home, given this circumstance we've all agreed that we described, our brother that talked about, of people feeling no social cohesion, people feeling, okay, if our person is there, it's our time. There was a lot of that. And that's why I wasn't very popular either. Even actually, in my husband's village, you know, when I was in government, I was representing my, my husband's state, Abia. And initially, 
it was like, why should she do that? We need to put someone of our own. But eventually they came to love me and like me, and I love them back. But most of them called me a useless, the useless wife. You know, they, because they call me their wife, you know, in endearment. But why was that? They would say it in an endearing way. But because I didn't deliver to them the goods, especially my first term, my second term, you know, they thought that when I was there, you know, everybody will get employed in the village. Some of them did manage to compete. I pointed out to them where there was recruitment, and they should go and compete. If they got it, fine. If they didn't get it. But they expected a lot of that. From my own state and village, they also expected that. And because I wasn't, you know, massively, so that's why I laugh. You know, when I see in the newspaper, oh, she filled the Ministry of Finance with all Igbo people. Meanwhile, the people who I was supposed to be helping feel I was totally useless, and I didn't deliver. So there was a lot of that, but how did I handle it? Knowing that would come, first from family, Immediate and extend. Immediate was not a problem because my siblings didn't want to come near me in any case. <laughs> um, you know, and I had to force them to be coming, you know, so they could support me. Um, but what I did was with my father, the very first time I went into government and the second time, we held a meeting with the family. And my father was instrumental. And he told them that no one was going to get anything. They should not bother me. This is the way it was going to be. If they needed anything, they should come to him. He would make sure it was channeled to me. And of course, when they came to him with CVs, he just put them in a box. <laughs> and then when he would put, visit me in Abuja, he would say, Ngozi, here are all these CVs. Just take a look so I can tell them I've shown it to you. And I'm, <laughs> and I'm taking them back. So that's how, and he just explained to everybody, I wasn't going to do that. That's not the daughter he raised. So that was extremely helpful. So I went in knowing this would happen and devising means. And then I just told people who I was. I told them, I'm not going to deliver you this, but what I can deliver is maybe something bigger for the entire village or the entire state or the entire country that would benefit you. But I'm not in the business of getting contract for anybody. So you just have to, and after a while, they got used to it. So that's what I advise. You don't have to fall into that trap. Just tell them who you are and how you're going to do business. And after a while, they become proud. Do you know they became proud? They will say, well, our wife, she doesn't do anything for us, but we know who she is. She's one person we can count on that is honest. So that's the way. The second one on international aid well, you know, I have to say, maybe because I'm also from the international community, during my time, uh, I have to speak from experience. Obviously, you cannot, I cannot sit up and vouch for every agency and say nothing was going wrong. And there were cases when we, we were given money and we misused it. Okay? Waste, not corruption. No, corruption. Oh, corruption? Yes. <laughs> No, I was there when money given by Gavi ah, was misused, and the World Bank as well. And we have very strict protocols, as you know. You sign that if they find misuse, the, the country has to reimburse the money. And so, but it was not the 
organizations that did this. We did. And they came to insist we must pay back. So we paid back, you know, for Gavi. <laughs> we paid it back. And you like this joke because the people who did the corruption in, of Gavi money in Nigeria, we, we, they found about 8 million. We were able to talk to them. We paid back 2 million during my time. President Jonathan agreed after he saw it and he sent the EFCC after the people. But then he lost. The election was lost. And so those people, some of them stayed behind. So what they did was, then I was recruited. I have to tell this story because it's so funny. <laughs> I was headhunted to be chair of the board of Gavi, you know, and competed, short, was shortlisted, went through the whole thing, and I got it. They turned around and said, aha, those people, they were still in government. They said, I now, it was all prearranged that I had arranged to pay Gavi when I was in government in order that they give me the chairmanship when I come out. And people believe them. <laughs> Until the international health community did a mission to Nigeria and explained to President Buhari what happened. And some of those people were then sacked. But for almost a year more, they were touting this story. If you go on the internet, you see it. That I paid Gavi beforehand. But of course, it sounded so ridiculous to the international community, and they lost all credibility. You understand? So I didn't see international uh, organizations, but we misbehaved, and they reacted. Um, it may be that in other countries you may find, now we found that international organizations and civil society, they are not always, they are also human. So you've got this whole... Um, you know, the whole issue about um, the Me Too movement, the sexual harassment, the safeguarding policies that DFID is now insisting be put in place because we found that organizations we love and trust have betrayed the trust in some countries. So I'm not here trying to say they're perfect. They are not. I just didn't find any during my time. But by the way, international organizations need to be very careful and be mindful of this kind of thing, because they're made up of human beings. And they really need to pay attention to corruption inside, sexual harassment, all the things that, that are important in society to be wary of, because it could happen. Finally, um, on the question about coming from the World Bank, <laughs> with, are you from Cote d'Ivoire? Cameroon. Uh, international organizations and minors. You should actually read the book. There's a chapter in there that talks about people who didn't, who didn't, there were people who didn't like me and who acted against me, not because they are corrupt people. I had to write about that because not everybody who attacked me was corrupt. No. Some people didn't like me because I was a woman and they felt a woman in a power, quote unquote, powerful position of finance minister was not acceptable. Some people didn't like me because they didn't like my ethnic group. And they felt, why am I from this ethnic group in this position? It should be one of their own. Some people didn't like me because I was from an international organization. And as far as they were concerned, if you have anything to do with the IMF and the World Bank, you're evil. And they were ideologues. And I quote you passages from these people. So there will be people like that. But then again, if you know that what you're bringing, those institutions are not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They've made mistakes. 
they will make mistakes. For me, the interesting thing about them is do they correct the mistakes? And they have evaluation offices that actually look at their work and say where they've done wrong, where they've done right, and they try to correct. So as long as they are willing to listen and be humble, that's why I talked about humility, and as long as countries are willing to take the driver's seat, these organizations don't want to be the drivers, but if they enter a country where people are not willing to be in the driver's seat, they can appear arrogant. So for me, knowing that I'm trying to bring what I've learned, if people have a problem with me being from the World Bank and the IMF, it's their problem. So let's end it there. So confidence in taking from these organizations what is good, leaving behind what is bad. Don't bring bad advice into these countries. Thank you. Okay. Ngozi, I think on behalf of everyone, I want to thank you. You have the most splendid combinations, uh, a combination of personal courage and good economics, a combination <laughs> of being very principled but also very practical, of being tough but very warm. And I suspect that you have inspired many more brave, crazy people in this room <laughs> to follow your footsteps. So thank you very much. And Gozi will be available uh, in the back, outside the auditorium, to sign books. So if any of you would like to, uh, to get a copy, please uh, assemble uh, in the back. And thank you again. I thank think you a big much. round of applause. <laughs>